In business, you rarely hear the expression for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com. Welcome to It's Personal, Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway. And I'm Cameron Conway. And this podcast is a very personal look at personal finance in Canada. Welcome to It's Personal, Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway, here with Cameron Conway. And today we're going to be starting another edition of Christine's Why Is This Baby Still Up at 4 a.m. Book Club. It's the book club where I'm the only participant and essentially I read personal finance books in the middle of the night while my baby isn't sleeping and then come up here and talk to you about them. Yes, it's the hip new thing. It's the book club for one at 4 a.m. Well, there's technically two of you, but uh, the little one can't read just yet. And I don't think he has the same level of interest in corporate finance as I do. I don't know. You'd be surprised. Some kids can show a quite an affinity towards, okay, who am I talking about? Yeah. Well, they do absorb a lot, but I don't think that's it. What I'm trying to do while filling the many hours that I now find myself with is read some of the classic personal finance books. So titles that we've all heard, maybe we've read years ago, maybe we haven't read at all. A lot of them are actually, I haven't read at all. And I'm also reading just some things of personal interest as well. And anything that's kind of relevant here, so generally covers the scope, even loosely, of personal finance, we can circle back if we think there's an application that you can take away without having to sit up at three o'clock in the morning wondering why you're uh, reading yet another book on finance. Well, yeah, well, a lot of these classics have were written years or if not decades ago, so it can be interesting to see how well they still hold up today, whether we can still apply their lessons, whether they turn out to be right, whether they turn out to be wrong. And like you said, what else are you going to do when you got a baby on your lap at 4 a.m.? So the book I read this time was Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is something that I had initially read as a teenager. My dad had purchased it, kind of said, here's a book about money. I read it, thought it was really good, and the years went by, completely forgot about it. If I remember correctly, he bought the book and he bought the board game, and he I remember he made us play it when we were just newly married. That's right. Yeah, he did go all in. Uh, it's funny. I mean, you always want your kids to do better than you did. I think maybe we played that game once. <laughs> it was probably when we played it together. But um, 
there are some good lessons that I think have stood the test of time that stand up here today. But a bit of a disclaimer with this one, the book is a bit controversial. And I mean, he says right in the book, if you kind of read, not even between the lines, it's right there in black and white. He was trying to get some media play out of saying things in a certain way. So he would put together these sound bites that would get him interviews and sell books. So really, if you can get past some of the bluntness and the rhetoric and read a little bit further, then you'll see he does explain his positions pretty well which uh, in some cases can be counter to what he seems to be saying. Like one of the big ones that got a lot of attention uh, that he says are, oh, savers are losers. Well, gasp, that sounds terrible, right? But when you kind of listen to what he's trying to say and what he's trying to mean, uh, it can start to come together a little bit better. Yeah, so going through this book is trying to strip out the PR machine and figure out what is actually usable and can actually help you right now, which is always fun every time you read books like this is, yeah, you have to kind of look at is there's some stuff you have to strip out, there's some stuff you have to ignore because of marketing and PR flashiness, and it's really just trying to drill down to what is actually some of these core thoughts and ideas without the bells and whistles, because that's where you see if a concept or a book is actually worth reading and implementing is stripping it down and seeing what is actually real. Well, and I would say the first four chapters of the book had a lot of value and the rest of it was a little bit fluffy, Uh, especially as Canadians. He does talk about corporations in there quite a bit, and we have very different rules here in Canada. So there's limited usefulness there in terms of the actual practical application. So why don't we start by talking about what we did like? Or, you know what, let's, before we do that, let's talk about the premise of the book. What was this book about? It was a fight between two dads over which one was actually the richest on the block. (laughs) Wait a second, did you read the book? I I may have skimmed through the summaries, which is a helpful thing to the book because you can just read the summaries at the end of every chapter. As someone with a bit more of an academic background, I appreciate that. Right. And I did the actual slog of reading through chapter by chapter, page by page to kind of get the full experience and uh, the premise of the book. So it's really written in story format. And it's about the author, Robert Kiyosaki, and his story about his childhood, where he and his friend Mike were essentially poor kids in a rich school and uh, feeling the pain of that and wanting to find out how to make money. So He sets the stage where he's got a highly educated father who works for the government who gave him one set of advice, which is the very traditional go to school, get a good job, settle down kind of thing, keep your job, work up the ranks, climb the corporate ladder. And on the other hand, his friend Mike's father owned several businesses and was willing to mentor the two young children. So as the story unfolds, you see Robert's viewpoint kind of shift towards that of his rich dad, and he gives examples from his own life about kind of how he did it, quote unquote. Uh, He invests heavily in real estate and in IPOs, things like that. But uh, here's where the references might get a little bit dated. I mean, he talks about buying a house in the States for $50,000. That's certainly not where we are today by any stretch of the imagination. But there are still ways to get good information out of this. Yeah, and kind of right from the beginning of the book, you kind of start to see this tension that the author is going through between these two worlds and even 
towards the end of the book, he tries to kind of have like a hybrid view of both sides, where it's not just the super business lifestyle or the teacher lifestyle. He's trying to force himself to live kind of with one foot in each realm to kind of have like a more balanced outlook. Yeah, I think what he does well is he has a very positive view on financial literacy, financial education. I mean, that's where we got the board games. And I mean, he has a whole company now, multiple books uh, worth, I'm sure, several millions of dollars on this subject. So he, he accomplished both financial literacy and getting rich at the same time. But he does focus on getting a good education, just using that education to cultivate skills that are useful so things like from his own life, the examples were he had done some military training for leadership and he'd gone through the Xerox training program. So he learned how to sell. And there's an overtone in the book where he talks about um, sales being a core skill that you can add to just about any profession to essentially use some of these other rules to take it to the next level. Yeah, so it's a mix of like... It's not just knowledge information, because that's the big argument that kind of comes out a lot. It's, I'm not just learning something for the sake of knowing something. I'm trying to learn tactile skills, or I'm trying to learn strategies to help me, because he kind of ebbs and flows between his military training, his merchant marine training, but then also just going to different seminars to learn how to do a new trading skill, a new real estate purchasing scheme. It's just learning how to do things that you can actually apply rather than just building up knowledge. Because I know that's kind of the thing that comes up where it's not just the full academic side. Because I know he kind of digs into that a little bit where there are intelligent people who don't make any money. And that's something he's trying to address is trying to get people more engaged on how to increase their income, increase their assets, and not just kind of rest on the laurels on the academic side, right? Yeah, I think one of the, the quotes that I liked from the book was, the world is full of talented poor people. And that is the problem, right? People that are very skilled and that have kind of gone the traditional route and worked up to high incomes in their field that still don't have the necessary money management skills or fa foundational understanding of how things work so that they can start to build assets. So let's talk about his core concepts so that we can dive into what he advocates and how it can be helpful to you today. So the first core concept is that the rich don't work for money. So the quote for this is the poor in the middle class work for money while the rich have their money work for them. And buying and building assets that deliver cash flow is putting your money to work for you. So this is a concept that I absolutely love. This is something that I kind of glomped onto right away and said, you know what, if people get nothing else out of this, this is huge. His viewpoint, the way he looks at money is how the cash flow moves. So it's a very dynamic thing. So what he does really well is using simple picture with no numbers, so you don't have to worry about that there, to illustrate how the cash flow pattern can tell a story. So it starts with the income statement, the income and expenses on the top. So this is simply just the money that you make. It can be from your job. It can be from a passive investment. It can be from like real estate, stocks, things like that. A portfolio that you have that's generating income for you on a regular basis and your expenses. And of course, the idea here is always to make sure that you have more income than you have expenses. And underneath that is the balance sheet, which shows your assets and liabilities. So 
What they talk about here is the idea that an asset is something that's going to put money into your pocket, whether you're working or not, or a liability is something that's going to take money out of your pocket. And that understanding this is really how you differentiate if what you have working for you is making you money or not. And let me explain. So one of the controversial things that he says is that your house is not an asset. Now, that will get a lot of eyebrows raised in these days, don't you think? Well, yeah, especially when it was first kind of talked because this is before like the zero interest and everyone going HELOC and trying to access the value in their home by going into mountains of debt. At this point, in order to turn your house into an asset, you had to sell it. So up until then, it was just a liability. You pay your mortgage, you pay your taxes, you pay your utilities. But then as things went on, people just started to try and force that appreciation to happen before it was sold. And that's kind of where a lot of people got into trouble later on. But yet at the time, this was like a very controversial thing because people just assumed that, oh, I'm putting money to this house. I'm going to get value out of it one day, maybe if I ever sell. Well, yeah, that whole capital appreciation argument, right? Because it's going to make money as I live in it, why is it not an asset? So a lot of his definitions in the book are not necessarily the dictionary's definition or what your accountant or your lawyer or your financial advisor would tell you. But like I said, the point, which is so simple and so beautiful of the movement of the money is really what makes the difference. So the idea is that a true asset is something that's going to be generating that passive income for you, whether you're at work or not, on a day-to-day, day-in, day-out basis. And if it's taking money out of your pocket, like a mortgage, like a car loan, like a boat loan or whatever other loans people might get, that's why he's making that distinction. So the true asset is something that is increasing your income on your income statement and a true liability is increasing your expenses and kind of the acid test that's used for this is the concept that well if you lost your job does the thing that you have as an asset support you or does it cause you a lot of stress and pain so a true asset by his definition would help through the hard times because it would be a continued source of income that you could rely on where a liability, which is a bill that you still need to pay, could actually be taken away from you, ultimately, if you're not able to pay for that. So uh, maybe it's not the actual house that's an asset or a liability, maybe it's the mortgage that's the liability, but that's kind of how the concept goes. So by stacking an income statement and a balance sheet and just simply drawing arrows, showing the cash flow from one to another, it really illustrates the movement of the money. And that's that's essentially why cash is king. It tells the story of how a person is handling their money. Yeah, if you kind of want to stick with the house example, you can turn it into an asset essentially by renting it out or flipping it. Like one of the examples used in the book, which doesn't apply to us, is how there's a loophole in the States where if you flip a house or buy a house that's more expensive, you don't have to pay tax on it right away. So again, that's something that doesn't apply to Canadians. But it's the idea of the house you live in can't be an asset, but if you buy another one to rent or flip, then it can qualify for that under under this scheme. Yeah, so the first real encouragement is for people to understand their own personal income statements, so their income expenses, and understanding their own personal balance sheets, which are their assets and liabilities, and just determine which way the money is going. Is it going into your pocket or is it going out of it? And to have the understanding that 
when people have enough income in excess of their expenses, that's really the only time while they're going to have the chance to grow their asset base. So basically, you have to be bringing in more than you have going out the door to be able to take a step towards financial freedom. Because until that asset base is generating enough for you that you can live on it, that's really the definition of financial independence or being financially free. At that point, you don't need your job anymore. Yeah, this is also why a lot of people default to investing to kind of meet these needs because, well, in Canada right now, the quickly buying a cheap house just doesn't exist anymore. So there aren't a lot of options. Not everyone can go out and just buy a business with a management system that they don't have to show up and do anything with. So a lot of people just kind of default to the investing strategy instead. Well, and that, in my mind, is kind of the basis for the FIRE movement, right? That is so popular here, where the idea is you're building passive income through a portfolio that you manage typically yourself or through an advisor online. And it's building enough assets in stocks or bonds or whatever your mix might be, so that one day you can withdraw a certain percentage and live on that comfortably for the rest of your life. And we've seen all sorts of variations of that where people will try and create a base amount of income and then maybe work a low stress part-time job or whatever else they feel fits into their lifestyle. So let's talk through some of these cash flow patterns. In the typical, what he defines as a poor person, that person has a job, essentially money flows into their income statement by the way of salary, and then it goes right out the door again in terms of taxes, maybe it's rent, food, transportation, clothing, whatever expenses they might have, and it doesn't touch their balance sheet. So because there's no mortgage, because there's no loans, it's really just a movement of You've got your money coming in, you're paying your expenses, money is gone. You're neither accumulating anything of value or paying down a loan on anything of value. Now for the middle class person, the picture is a little bit different. It starts with the same job and the same salary cash flow coming in. And then it jumps down over to the balance sheet onto the liabilities section because this person with a higher income, it now has a mortgage, they might have a car loan, they might have some student loans or credit card debt. So the pattern dips down into the liabilities because now you have obligations, you have all of these bills to pay. So one of the things he talks about in the book, now your salary, you're not just working for yourself anymore. You're working for your lenders, your bankers, your auto loan provider, all of these people that you've made promises to, you have to fulfill those obligations. So the cash flow moves from your hands, from your job to your salary, to these liabilities that you're you're paying on a monthly basis. And then it goes over to your expenses, which can include taxes and any other payments or expenses that you might have to live. So the concept here is that for someone in the middle class, making more money doesn't necessarily translate over into more success. And the reason why is that it typically means that as your income has gone up, the nice stuff that you want has typically increased as well. So that could be a bigger home, a fancier car, a nicer wardrobe. But all of these things are not creating any kind of passive income for you. They're not actually building any assets. I mean, that's the controversial part. I mean, if you've got a home, sure, maybe it is. But from the point of view of where is the money going, it's going right out the door. And this is what he calls the rat race. And I mean, that 
term is part of pop culture, popular vernacular, whatever you want to say. There's a pretty good movie called Rat Race from a few years ago with <laughs> yeah. Rowan Atkinson and a bunch of others. It was good. I liked it. But uh, yeah, it's more than a few years now. I think we're dating ourselves. But the point is that the rat race essentially is when you get stuck. You've taken on so many liabilities in the form of regular monthly payments that eat up so much of your income that there's nothing left or very little left to save and not enough to make a difference in the accumulation of assets that will either A, get you retired or B, help you create enough passive income to escape. So this is when people feel trapped. They feel like, oh my goodness, I've got a couple kids. I've got this mortgage. I've got these loans. I can't lose my job. I can't take a lower salary and pursue something that I'm more interested in. I can't take a sabbatical. I can't go on a prolonged vacation or travel the world or whatever it might be. And I think that's the beginning of the typical midlife crisis where, uh, I mean, we're, we're quickly approaching that point as well. Hopefully not the crisis point, but definitely the midlife. And it's the point of reevaluation where... I think that reevaluation can start with looking at how the money is moving. And only when you understand how the money is moving and specifically understand that gap between your income and your expenses, that's how you can start to dig out, escape the rat race, get out of the hole kind of thing. Yeah. And a lot of this boils down to, well, really the author's big push for financial literacy. It's actually taking the time and making sure people learn and understand these things because really from childhood on, we're just kind of taught the reactionary way of doing it. It's bill pops up, you pay it. It's not a lot of forward thinking or understanding how these things work, how, understanding how cash flow works, how understanding how business sales and all the other things can actually work to help you better yourself later in life, even going the full academic route, you kind of miss out on a lot of the stuff. Even with the high school I went to, the only class that taught financial literacy was the class you had to take if you weren't smart enough to get into the higher end math classes you needed for university. And this is how a lot of places have looked at this. It's kind of bottom of the barrel, not important. You'll figure out later, especially if you're smart, but the way it's actually played out, it's the people who learn this stuff tend to be more successful than the quote unquote smart people. Well, that's it. You think of it as it's just another area of study. So you can be incredibly smart and incredibly literate in your particular area of expertise, whether it's your trade, whether it's an academic career or anything in between. You can be so proficient, so smart, and just maybe never took the time to pay attention to your money, specifically money in, money out. And that's where people get caught. I think it's part societal that keeping up with the Joneses, trying to have nice things, but maybe to the point of the author in this book, the need to expand our narrative and expand our understanding of what is generating income versus what is taking away from our income and how that fits with our overall goals is something that's important. So maybe you say to yourself, you know what, I'm okay. I get a house. I build that asset. I pay down my mortgage over the years. It's done at the end of the day. I'm good. I'm good working a job. I'm good doing all of this. But if you're someone that's seeking that independence that comes with having an asset base, maybe there are other ways to do that. So one of the things that's mentioned as well is not all investments have to be like we talked about stocks or bonds or mutual funds or real estate. Intellectual property is another big one that I think gets missed. And 
in a lot of where people make money today with all the side hustles and the side gigs, people are inclined to use their minds to create things. So it's figuring out how that creation can lead to some kind of income and something that can start to build an asset base if you don't have enough money for the traditional ways of investing. So maybe it's a little bit of thinking outside the box. Like uh, in the book, there's an example of how these two kids, uh, so Robert Kiyosaki and his friend Mike, were told by Rich Dad to work for free. And after doing this for weeks at the dad's store and kind of grumbling and moaning as they go, they saw an opportunity. And the opportunity was there were old comic books that wouldn't get sold and the covers got ripped off and they got returned to the distributor. So they had asked the distributor if they could have them. And he said yes. So they started a little library and hired a kid sister kind of thing to run it for them. And just like that, we're making income. So again, not everybody's going to start a lemonade stand or anything along those lines. We're maybe a little bit older than that. But the concept is a good one. The concept is how do you see opportunity in what's around you? And how do you see opportunity in what your particular skill set is? Does someone else have a need for something that you can offer that you can either automate or have someone else help run for you? Or even if it's you putting in the blood, sweat and tears for a while, there's nothing wrong with that as you build it out. That's what a business is. Yeah. And this kind of also flows into another big topic in the book, which is the power of corporations and how... so. The, there's a lot of distinctions in the book between what he was able to do and what we can do up here in Canada, but it's the idea of using the corporation to run expenses, to make a more tax advantageous situation for yourself. And this is, this is legal. This is in the codes. We see this, like we have several corporations ourselves. We have Braun, I have my own publishing company. And the way this works is you use your pre-tax income to pay expenses, qualifying expenses, of course, rather than using your after-tax income. And this is a big thing that gets talked about in the book is just leveraging what you can do with these corporations to help your cash flow in the long term. Well, yeah, and it's a great model where if you're a business owner with a corporation, and I kind of say that loosely because setting up a corporation is super easy and it's really just a bunch of papers that you do with your lawyer and it provides all kinds of protection and, and a separation from your personal assets to the business assets for creditors, for things like that. But the model is when you have this available to you, you can earn your money first, spend your money second, and then pay taxes third. Whereas as an employee who works for someone with a corporation, you earn your money first, pay your taxes second, and then what's left is what you have to spend. So there's a material difference between how much is left after the taxes. And businesses, there are also usually incentives like a much lower tax rate within the corporation, at least until you take the money out and have to pay income tax on it that way. But this plays into kind of the Robin Hood story that uh, he talks about in the book, which is the classic take from the rich, give to the poor. Uh, but it really has only caused the poor and middle class who voted for it uh, pain because the rich are looking for legal ways on a regular basis to pay less taxes. And corporations, corporate structures are a great way to do that. So obviously speak to a lawyer before you do anything. But if you do have a skill set that could be profitable and 
profitable in the sense that you would make more than it would cost you to do the setup and do the maintenance on your corporation, that could be something worth exploring for that particular skill. And that could separate out creditors or debtors for the business from personal. And there's all kinds of advantages that way. But I do want to circle back really quick to our money pictures and the things that we were talking about. So we talked a little bit about how he explains how people get the cash flow pattern wrong by essentially directing their assets into things that are not helping them from an income generation point of view on a month to month basis. And I wanted to go over the cash flow pattern of a rich person as it is in the book. And this one, rather than starting at your job or your salary, it's starting from your balance sheet in the asset column. So at this point, the individual has been able to generate enough assets, whether they are intellectual property or stocks and bonds or real estate or whatever it might be, that that is driving a monthly income into the income statement in the form of rental income, dividends, interest, royalties, something that's all or mostly passive. Now, that income then can be used to discharge any liabilities and any expenses. But the idea is that a person who has accumulated a lot of wealth versus a person that's maybe stuck in the middle of class, they have a difference in their balance sheet. And the asset list for the person that is considered rich is very, very long and much greater than their liabilities. Whereas the person that's maybe stuck in the middle class is has an a liabilities or monthly expenditures that is much greater than the passive income that they have coming in and again that's why they need their jobs that's why they're stuck in the rat race and that's why potentially earning more money won't necessarily solve the problem because the problem is habits it's spending structure and wanting nice new shiny things and that whole keeping up with the joneses so from that point of view, the movement of money, cash flow is king. And I think for me, reading that book, that was my biggest lesson. It's take a look at my own stuff. Take a look at where's my money coming from? Where is it going? And is there enough of a gap between my income and my expenses to start building my assets? And if there's not, how can I creatively find ways to bridge that gap? So, I mean, we're doing this podcast where we're not making any money off of it, but that's fine. Um, it's a labor of love and maybe one day it'll become income generating. Who knows? But how can we get information out there? How can we get something that we're skilled in out there in a way that meets a need for people that people say, yes, there's enough value here for me that I'm willing to pay for it. So a little bit of creativity, but not a bad thing, right? Our greatest assets are our minds after all and our ability to innovate. So if we can tap into that, if we don't have the available cash, maybe that's a good starting point. So that's a look at how we saw Rich Dad, Poor Dad. To answer our initial question of is the book still relevant today, I would say absolutely the sections that make you aware of building your assets and minimizing your liabilities and understanding your cash flow patterns, that's hugely relevant and that will transcend time. Uh, there's a lot of fluff in there specifically towards the end. So if you can kind of get through that part or, you know, skip to the end of the chapter, uh, each to their own. 
Uh, as always, if you want to talk about cash flow and money management, we're available and we're happy to help if you're in the BC area. So feel free to check us out at Braun Financial, braunfinancial.com. Ultimately, we're all just learning together. So hopefully this helps you. And if we can help you at all, please just let us know how. So until the next time, take care and all the best. And we have a very, very grumpy baby and an equally grumpy dog. What a day. In business, you rarely hear the expression for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com.